Hello and welcome to the recording of my conversation with John Lindsay on his research on cyber warfare. My name is Marina Henke. I'm a professor of international relations at the Hurdy School and the director of the Center for International Security. The event was part of our speaker series, Challenges in International Security, hosted by our center in Berlin and took place on October 26, 2021. During the event, John explained the intricate planning and implementation process of the Stuxnet cyber attack that seriously damaged the Iranian nuclear program and uses the example to explain the limits of our understanding of cyber warfare. If you enjoy this recording, please let us know and subscribe to our newsletter. My name is Marina Henke. I'm a professor of international relations at the Hurdy School and the director of the Center for International Security. The purpose of the speaker series is to stimulate strategic thinking among our Hurdy students and the wider audience. And as a result, all our invited speaker tackle big questions at the grand strategic level, so to speak. How can Germany and Europe preserve peace and prosperity in the coming decades? What role can alliances and international institutions play in these plans? And how is technology changing the global security landscape? For this academic year, we have chosen in addition the topic of deterrence as our overarching theme. Deterrence is one of the most important strategies in international affairs, and yet its application is very complex and often poorly understood. Over the course of this year, we want to shed light on the various aspects of deterrence and how it operates in the different fields of international security, conventional, nuclear, legal, economic, and cyber. And today we will start with cyber. And I'm truly delighted to have one of the world's most renowned experts on this question of cyber deterrence and cybersecurity, John Lindsay. John is an associate professor at the School of Cybersecurity and Privacy and also at the Sam Nunn School of International Affairs at the Georgia Institute of Technology or Georgia Tech in short. He's the author of extremely important books in this realm of cybersecurity. The latest one is Information Technology and Military Power. It got published last year by Cornell University Press, but then he also co-edited cross-domain deterrence strategy in, area, in an era of complexity that came out in 2019, and China and cybersecurity, spionage strategy and politics in the digital domain, which came out in 2015. And he's currently working on his fourth book called Age of Deception, Intelligence and Cybersecurity in International Relations. John holds a PhD in political science from MIT and a master's in computer science and a bachelor in symbolic systems from Stanford University. So he really bridges this the gap between political science and uh, computer science, which is very remarkable. And he also served in the US Navy with assignments in Europe, Latin America, and the Middle East. John, we're absolutely delighted to have you. The floor is yours. Well, great. Thank you very much, Marina, for that too kind introduction. And it's really, really my pleasure to be here. Um, I want to thank all of you for coming at 6 p.m. and staying up late. Uh, I'm on the West Coast of the United States right now at 9 a.m. So uh, here we are um, bridging uh, time zones as well. 
Uh, let me go ahead and uh, share some things with you. This is going to be a fairly uh, graphics intensive presentation. This is the first time that I've been able to uh, present this work, which is uh, looking back on some of my previous work and some of the uh, things that we have learned about this important case and that we have learned about cybersecurity in general uh, since I did this research. So, um, so really, this is my first chance to, uh, to present this, and so I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, as Marina mentioned, um, this will be a little bit about deterrence, this original uh, paper, which um, you may have had the misfortune to have assigned at some point, um, does talk a little bit about deterrence and tries to make the argument that cyber warfare is often a response to successful deterrence when states are deterred from military aggression. Uh, sometimes cyber is an attractive uh, workaround. Um, but I'm going to qualify and complicate some of my, uh, my conclusions. So this is a, a bit of an auto critique. Unless you've been living in a cave for the last 10 years, uh, you're hopefully familiar at least with the broad outlines of the case of Stuxnet. This was an operation to disrupt enrichment at an underground facility in Iran. Uh, it was first discovered by a Belarusian uh, cybersecurity firm. Um, it was publicized in July 2010, uh, followed quickly with announcements from uh, Microsoft starting to, to patch these vulnerabilities. Uh, um, technical reports from commercial cybersecurity firms, uh, the semantic source being a very, very important one. That was followed on by uh, analyses of IAEA inspections of Iran and speculations that this computer virus had uh, taken out a thousand or more centrifuges, which uh, were observed to be disconnected. Um, uh, deep dives into um, uh, what was going on by uh, Ralph Langner, right? Um, uh, you know, well-known cybersecurity expert in, in Germany followed by uh, investigative journalism that started to tease out uh, through anonymous sources, right, uh, the Israeli connection, uh, the fact that this was part of a named covert operation known as Operation Olympic Games uh, in, in David Sanger's reporting. And of course, this culminates, this era culminates in uh, the, the excellent, you know, history, kind of still the definitive history of the Stuxnet episode by uh, Kim Setter. Okay. So in uh, the immortal words of John Gaddis, we now know a few things, but uh, still not a lot. This is still a very, very secret and ambiguous case, and there's still a lot that's not known. But in this talk, I want to try and leverage the fact that we still don't know a lot, and what we do know raises a lot of questions uh, to see actually if that tells us something about cybersecurity in general. What I'm going to do is try and put the history, in fact, the expanded history of this case side by side with the historiography. Uh, and we're gonna look at how we know and what we know are actually interacting in this case and in cybersecurity in general. So, there are going to be several charts that will have a lot of detail. I am not going to go through all of this in detail. That would be tantamount to, uh, you know, an entire history of cybersecurity and, you know, U.S.-Iranian-Israeli uh, relations. Um, what I do want to do is put this up there to kind of show the kinds of complexity that go into trying to put together a technical and political cyber campaign analysis. So what we're looking at here first are sources of Stuxnet, 
technical artifacts that are related to Stuxnet, and we're going to see it's a larger family of things, and other notable events that have informed our debate about cybersecurity. So here in the middle is what I call canonical Stuxnet. All right, these are uh, the sources that I quickly reviewed at the beginning, as well as a couple of uh, different versions of Stuxnet and different attacks on uh, five different facilities in Iran that led to the global infection uh, that alerted everybody and prompted Iran to, to block their um, uh, infection. So that's, that's kind of what everybody has uh, looked at. That's what I looked at. And um, this set of sources and phenomena have produced these kind of very, very divergent literatures. They're sort of the alarmists that say, hey, this is an existence proof that show that cyber physical attack is possible. And the skeptics, and my paper would kind of fall in this category, would say, hey, this shows the inherent limits of what you can do with cyber war, right? It's not as potent as you think. Um, but, you know, when we look at Stuxnet in kind of the history of the discussions of uh, cybersecurity, you can kind of see there's, there's BS, right? There's before Stuxnet. There's a bunch of claims that cyber war is coming. There's a digital Pearl Harbor. Offense always has the advantage over defense. Weak asymmetric actors have new advantages over the strong. You can never figure out how, who did it, right? So that was sort of the, the debate in policy and cyber scholarship before Stuxnet, to the extent that it even existed, right? You had sort of had a lot of insiders that were trying to convince people that this mattered. And then in the CE, right, which is the cyber everywhere era, this is the last 10 years, right, where cyber conflict has become not just ubiquitous, it has radically differentiated. And uh, instead of exaggerations, we now have this expanding set of conversations about death by a thousand cuts, right? Not catastrophic cyber war, but ongoing espionage and subversion, There's the rise of the fifth domain, the cyber domain, worries about conflict that's not quite war, but is definitely not peace in the gray zone, worries about an epistemic crisis as information operations attack the basis of truth. Um, NATO and US Cyber Command exploring this concept of persistent engagement. And now we're now talking about information warfare again, which is sort of bringing us all the way back to cyber war at the beginning. And within that context, Stuxnet really seems like such a precious case, right? It is really one very unique case in this expanding universe of cases and really does not seem very representative. So Stuxnet is this seminal case that sort of falls, you know, at this, this, this cusp, but, but people kind of reflect and say like, well, okay, how much does it really teach us? So I want to call your attention now to this bottom set of sources. I call this a cyber paleontology. I'm actually borrowing from Juan Andres Guerrero-Sad. He's a cyber researcher, uh, worked most recently uh, with Google Chronicle. And um, this is kind of this ongoing research by cybersecurity firms and academic uh, computer science labs, investigative journalists that are kind of unearthing additional material. And that has shed light on the Stuxnet timeline, which both pushes it backwards and pushes it forwards. And in this perspective, we see that Stuxnet really is not one thing. In fact, it's several versions of different things built on different platforms. We're looking at parallel ongoing intelligence operations that span two decades, okay? So I think now, it's appropriate to look at Stuxnet less as a case of cyber warfare and more of kind of these translucent windows into these ongoing intelligence contests. We can make this 
com this context even more complicated. I am definitely not going to go through this. Okay, but um, but what we're looking at here are the technical artifacts already complicated, but in a sense, this is almost the easy part. Okay, we have to appreciate this regional context did not start with Stuxnet. It continues to go, and everybody knows this is a very very complex neighborhood. And policymakers are paying attention to many things other than Stuxnet, right? People are playing for high stakes in this area. Now, if we look at the offensive side of Olympic Games, the US-Israeli partnership, um, this isn't just a simple case of an alliance, right? Going against a common adversary. This is a very complicated relationship. And I've broken out several of the kind of unilateral Israeli moves in uh, in italics, right? Um, and this includes things like uh, unilateral Israeli raids on uh, Iraqi and Syrian nuclear facilities. It includes uh, Mossad-targeted killings of Iranian uh, uh, scientists, right? Things that kind of suggest how difficult and, and fraught this relationship has been. We see a long history of things like Stuxnet, but not necessarily cyber, targeting the Iranian nuclear program, okay? We see that Stuxnet itself and Olympic Games itself is not just a cyber operation. It's got a lot of other things going on. There are human intelligence pieces. There are covert action pieces. Um, there uh, is a constant background concerns about Israeli planning for an airstrike against uh, Natanz. So this is a more complex cross-domain problem. We also see that Iran is not a passive victim. Okay, you see that line there, the IR, uh, Iran breaches CIA communication systems, right? Right in the middle of this, uh, CIA suddenly uh, has all of its agent operations exposed in Iran. Um, Iran has already been on alert. They know from these previous operations that they've got issues. They're actively searching, and we now know that there was um, uh, some serious loss of life that was connected, not just with CIA agent operations in Iran, but also with human intelligence assets that were directly supporting Olympic Games. I think we also see that this story, which didn't start with Stuxnet, doesn't end with Stuxnet. It has gone on. We see retaliations, reverberations, maturing cyber programs, and evolutions in this chronic covert contest in this very, very fraught triangle. We can also see a little bit, I wanted to kind of just put kind of the effects of uh, Stuxnet in, into perspective and tons and tons of uncertainties here. Um, but if we kind of look at, at the, the timeline, we pushed back when we think Stuxnet was operated. And I'm gonna talk a little bit more later about why we think that there's a US Stuxnet and then a forked Israeli Stuxnet, right? Um, you might be able to tell yourself a story that um, while centrifuges are increasing, you're starting to see that green area open up. And that suggests that there's this inefficiency, right? There's more centrifuges, but less of them actually enriching. Maybe that's attributable to Stuxnet. Um, and maybe the more aggressive version of Israeli Stuxnet, which ends up compromising the operation, um, is responsible for some of that, okay? That's very, very speculative. We know where this compromise is. We also know that it took Iran several months to actually recover. Then you can see that that recovery actually starts. Now. Um, when we actually look at the output of that program, you can see that there's kind of this continuous curve of 
lightly enriched uranium output. Okay, so you can say, well, okay, you know, there might have been an impact on centrifuges, but in what matters, we're seeing an increasing, you know, uh, story of, uh, of Iranian latency getting closer and closer to an ability to, to break out on many different measures. Um, but we can also say during this entire time, there was no Israeli airstrike. And I'm gonna try and suggest that this was an important part of at least the US part of this operation. Now, I think we also can highlight here that we've also got this parallel diplomatic effort. And we know a little bit more about how the failure of Olympic games was part of the impetus behind the US doubling down on secret talks uh, with Iran, which um, by September 2013 in the Obama Rouhani conversation that opens up the P5 plus one uh, process, we now actually see a process that caps centrifuges at, at, at um, Natanz, that's that limiting you're seeing. There's finally the JCPOA nuclear deal agreement, and then uh, in October uh, 2015, adoption day, right? So you can kind of say, hey, it was diplomacy rather than, you know, covert operations that actually has a material effect on centrifuge trends, but there's a more complicated interaction between covert action and diplomacy than we perhaps appreciated before, okay. Now, um, this here's kind of the bizarre love triangle between uh, Iran, Israel, and the United States. Um, I also will not go into depth here, but what I do want to point out is there is this gray zone in between, and it's not just gray zone conflict, okay? It's also gray zone secret diplomacy, okay? There's secret diplomacy between the United States and Israel that yes, have a shared interest in uh, ending or denying the Iranian nuclear program, but Israel for obvious reasons cares a lot more about this uh, than the United States does. And Israel has demonstrated its willingness to take unilateral action. So the United States wants to not only limit Iran, but also restrain and reassure Israel. And bringing pre-existing intelligence operations to bear on this is a credible way to do this, right? To actually come closer to an ally in order to prevent entrapment. And that's actually backwards from the usual story, right? That getting close with an ally is going to cause entrapment, right? Here, the idea is to draw together secretly in order to have Israel more involved in this covert action problem program. Now, Israel is doing a lot of its own things as well because it wants to motivate the United States to do something else. We also see secret diplomacy between the United States and Iran, okay? Um, and those are those kind of the secret talks that eventually uh, blossom into uh, the, the open P5 uh, plus one conversation. Um, so this is an incredibly kind of complex set of, of bargains. And I would suggest that the covert realm, both in terms of ongoing chronic covert conflict between peace and war, as well as secret diplomacy in this complex trilateral triangle is the, the kind of mutually agreed equilibrium that arises out of this relationship. So on the outside, you kind of see uh, overt things that we're all watching, but on the inside is this incredibly important sub-rosa dimension of these relationships. This is an eye chart, another one, right? I told you there's gonna be a lot of complexity. Complexity is kind of the point, but I'm gonna again, try and, and tease out a few things. What we're looking at here is the best as I can put together the offensive coalition in Olympic games. All right, 
down at the bottom, we now know uh, from recent reporting from Kim Zetter and her colleagues uh, that this was larger than the United States and Israel. We, we have uh, some, some indications that the UK was involved. We now know that the Netherlands and particularly uh, some human intelligence sources, uh, as well as Germany. Now, we don't really know exactly what the German connection is. I have a very speculative link between, you know, we know that Siemens for defensive purposes was working with the Idaho National Laboratory on industrial control system security. Uh, whether that percolated into the tests that were going on on the offensive side uh, is one of many, many, many uh, uh, puzzles that are, are open gaps here. Um, but we do know that there's this larger coalition, okay? Um, I think it's really important when we're looking at cyber, in fact, we're looking at anything in national security to really open up the black box of the state and look at that we have this complex policy apparatus. In the United States, right, um, this is kind of leadership and oversight, the intelligence community, military apparatus, and then other parts of the government, the Department of Energy in this case. Now, uh, in the US, right, there's this strange distinction between Title 50 intelligence operations and Title 10 military operations. Other countries do things different. We should expect that institutional structure to leave an imprint on operations. And there's indications that that is the case um, here. But I put Olympic Games as just one little box within the CIA umbrella, right? To suggest that what we're looking at is kind of covert action authorities to help the CIA coordinate what a lot of different agencies are doing. But I don't think Olympic Games was the first operation here, nor was it the only part of this cloud of activity that is around Stuxnet. Now, I'm gonna talk a little bit more about the technical side here. Let me just um, highlight what I'm calling the intelligence platforms equation group, which is mostly the NSA, but a little bit of CIA. That's interesting, right? These are shared tools helping an interagency process. Um, a platform known as Flame, these are um, outside appellations. We don't actually know what these actors call this. Every indication is these are shared tools that the United States and Israel have used. And then we've got these other platforms, Flower Shop, Dooku, um, that appear to be Israeli platforms, right? Four different platforms that are feeding into Stuxnet, all right? All I want you to take away right now is that these are pre-existing programs that predate what we know about the instantiation and even discussions about Olympic Games, okay? So the capabilities and the intelligence activities of the technical side were ongoing before we moved into this disruptive covert action. Down at the bottom, the Department of Energy on the US side, on the Israeli side, we've got the Shimon Perez Negev Nuclear Research Center, right? Um, not just doing cyber, but actually having to build test facilities with uh, Libyan or other you know, stop, uh, acquired centrifuges to test different versions of Stuxnet. And we increasingly believe that these were different versions, okay? They, they forked at some point, right? That had to be coordinated. We also have these contributions of the Department of Defense, right? We now uh, know from kind of multiple um, investigative journalist reportings in the New York Times and, and other places that there was this larger program called Nitro Zeus, which was the cyber warfare component of OPLAN 1025, which is the U.S. contingency plan for war with Israel, with uh, well, war with Iran. Uh, which is largely becoming more and more serious as it looks like um, Israel may be more likely to get something started, right? Especially 2010, late 2010, 11, Israeli preparations are really starting to, to get into 
uh, gear, all right? So you've got this planning effort going on that is borrowing a lot of these same tools, in fact, is being largely performed by the, uh, the NSA. Okay, we also have more detail, interestingly, on the Israeli tech, but more on the American process, okay? I think it tells you something about kind of, one, the aggressiveness of Israeli intelligence operations, but also uh, perhaps um, more security discipline on the Israeli side, right? A lot of that openness comes from kind of, you know, anonymous sources and leaks on the U.S. side, but we don't see as many on the, the Israeli side in this case. Okay, another eye chart, okay? Um, I'm not going to talk too much about this. This is really, really technical, um, but I've been working with kind of technical people that care about this to try and put together in one place what we know about the, the technical picture here. Okay, um, this is mostly produced by open source malware analysis, reverse engineering of samples in the wild, supplemented by unauthorized leaks. And that is controversial. Let's talk about that controversy a little bit later, right? I'm talking Snowden and shadow brokers here, okay? Um, so, you know, when I kind of have the equation group right there, you know, um, some of those pieces are, uh, you know, coming from uh, malware, and some of them we actually now have an idea what the NSA actually referred to them as uh, internally, okay? Interestingly, I want to kind of draw your attention to when you see uh, these, these three little words that say cleanup. Cleanup under Gauss, cleanup under Flame, above Flame 2.0, cleanup under Dooku. Okay, these are these interesting events where you have these interactions between the commercial cybersecurity actors that are finding, detecting, and reporting on these, and then behavioral changes in the American Israeli threat actors. Okay, that's important, right? What we know about this is actively influencing the behavior of the threat actors, right? So we kind of saw these big cleanup activities. In the case of Flame, we thought Flame totally disappeared, but it actually got re-architected and, and, and reappeared. Okay. Um, down at the bottom, right, four to five samples of Stuxnet now spanning uh, three years, not just the two we looked at uh, originally. And, um, and, and, and there are big indications when you sort of kind of look at these technical details that there is this American-Israeli fork right, in kind of the late 2009 uh, timeframe, okay? So we think that there was probably kind of separate development efforts that were borrowing uh, some of this shared um, capabilities. Um, if I took a poll here, how many zero days did Stuxnet use? You might say many, several, four is the number of people used for that. Some people say five. Um, I've been able to count up eight, okay? And, and there, you, you can count these in different ways, but um, in, in italics, you're kind of looking at uh, different vulnerabilities that are incorporated in different ways. And some of them are really interesting, right? Some of them we see like the same vulnerability that's implemented in very, very different ways. So there's like an American implementation of one version and then an Israeli implementation of that, that same vulnerability. Multiple platforms and shared platforms. We've talked a little bit about that, um, uh, but I'm gonna move on. Okay, this is my last eye chart, I promise you. Again, I told you complexity was uh, the issue here. Um, hopefully uh, you're getting the point that uh, cyber is some complex stuff. But it's complex not just in terms of technology, but in terms of this larger institutional context. So now we're looking at not the offensive side, but sort of the target environment. Most studies are looking at kind of the Natanz kind of fuel enrichment plant and all of the very sophisticated technical operations that happened within there. 
Okay, and that's fascinating and interesting and tells us a lot about how sophisticated the actor needs to be. I kind of want to zoom back and talk about this larger universe, which I think tells us a lot generally about how we need to think about cyber conflict in general. Now, over on the other side, you see that box in the Olympic Games states, which is US, Israel, and friends. Okay, um, everything we just looked at on the technical side and the foreign policy side would fit within that offensive function of the box. Okay, now those same actors have multiple equities, right? The same entities, National Security Agency, US Cyber Command, are also responsible for defensive functions. Okay, that's complicated. Okay, um, um, they have complicated relationships with the same entities that they're actively exploiting. Of course, Stuxnet blew that um, wide open. Okay, um, up at the top, global civil society. Okay, this is, if there's kind of one message I really want people to take away is that the cyber domain is not just this geographical virtual terrain. It is conflict by, with, and through the companies, the infrastructures, and the actors that make up civil society around the world. And it's not separate from these states, it's overlapping with them, okay? So these are operations that go by, with, and through civil society. In some cases, these are technology vendors that are being exploited, their technology is being subverted. In some cases, they're providing unbewitting to them command and control infrastructure that can be used by the threat actor. We also have the cybersecurity sector, right? Which is an active participant in this in multiple ways. Defensive counterintelligence actors, and they're also providing capabilities to the government. So global civil society is a reactive, active uh, environment here. Okay. Um, for the Iranian side, right? That part of that big overlap is Iranian civil society. Access isn't very complicated. We can now put actually names to um, the Iranian facilities, all of them uh, nuclear suppliers that were the vectors for inserting via human agents, uh, Stuxnet, right? Or Stuxnet human agents help cross into the Natanz facility. But also that very complexity was the undoing, which led to uncontrolled spread and the malware samples that then led to everything that we're talking about today. Now, down at the bottom, Iranian security services. I don't want to talk about this enough, but right, part of the goal is to is to keep all of this knowledge from trickling into the security services that can do anything about it. That open source reporting plays a big part in Iranian incident response. Okay, so yet another way in which what we know and how we know it um, are interacting. Going back over to the other corner, right? Put other threat actors, right? And I'm overlapping that with our leaks, all right. There's still a lot we don't know about the shadow brokers. We think they're Russian, can't prove it, right? Um, um, there's all kinds of theories about Snowden and what he was and what he did and what he did afterwards, right? You can have your own theories on there, but like, like, are we looking at information operations, right? Are we looking at attempts to influence um, as we're putting this together, all right? So again, here we have that interesting overlap between civil society, certainly in the Manning case, right? The Olympic Games states that are all kind of employees, these are official documents and potential, you know, hostile threat activity that are uh, of these parallel ongoing intelligence contests. Okay, so let me try and wrap this up. Um, for those of you that have small children or an unhealthy uh, interest in pop music from the 1990s, um, you may know that uh, They Might Be Giants, an American pop band, uh, wrote a song called Why Does the Sun Shine? 
And they said, well, the sun is a mass of incandescent gas. And 20 years later, they put out another children's album that says, why does the sun really shine? And they said, well, actually it's a miasma of incandescent plasma. Forget that song, we got it wrong, right? That hypothesis is now invalid. So, um, so when we contrast my incandescent gas article with my uh, incandescent plasma presentation, which I've just presented. Um, I presented this as the first case of cyber war. I think that's misleading. I think we're looking at a continuity of covert action, not even one case, but multiple overlapping cases. Um, I think this is not really a revolution in military affairs. I think that's true, right? But that only tells you what it's not. It doesn't tell you what this is, which is this large scale evolution in intelligence affairs, okay? I talked about kind of the constraining role of deterrence, right? That you turn to cyber because you can't do anything and you're really frustrated about it. And cyber is this second best alternative. Um, and there are indications that reinforce that interpretation, but I think it undersells this broad space for secret diplomacy and productive stabilizing features of, of covert action and covert interaction. Um, I stress this asymmetric reversal, right? That this was a weapon of the strong, not the weak. I think we have a better appreciation for how intense these coordination problems were within this broad, large coalition. Again, focusing us on domestic institutions, going to the next one, I described this, I think very unfairly, as an offensive fizzle. I think it was never intended to be big, right? I think in many ways it did spectacularly well what it was supposed to do not just against the Iranian program, but in helping to make sure that there wasn't a, an Israeli airstrike, okay? So, um, so it was successful in that sense, but also reinforcing that point about the difficulty of offense, I think is really highlighting the complexity of these socio-technical interactions uh, across institutions, globally, domestically, whatnot. Um, and I kind of confidently said, hey, this is the evidence that we have is disconfirming evidence for the cyber war thesis. Okay, I think that's that's reinforced. But I think we can also say there are massive gaps about this case. But that is the point, right? That tells us that states are interested in secrecy, number one, the political utility in secrecy. And number two, secrecy is hard to maintain because we have this larger interaction with civil society. I'm wrapping this up. I want to get to questions. I'm just about there. Okay. So I'm just going to highlight really quickly sort of the sort of the broader story. Okay. I think that understanding cybersecurity and Stuxnet helps to get us there, but in general, we should look at this as not an independent cybersecurity thing, but part of this broader interest in international relations to look at intelligence. So we can say cybersecurity is intelligence, but it's only recently, I think, that scholars are now starting to seriously unpack not just the institutional dimension of, 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 uh, of intelligence, and who always had great work there from Bob Jervis and Amy Zegert and others, right? But this emerging focus on the strategic dimension. So Alison Carnegie and Lindsay O'Rourke and Austin Carson, right? Um, really telling us that, hey, we're learning that the gray zone is a very, very strategically interesting and productive place, right? It's a place where you have conflict, but it's conflict that's predicated on collusion between adversaries who have mutual disinterest in escalation. They want to signal both restraint and resolve at the same time. Ambiguity helps them to do that. 
Um, we're starting to see that secrecy in many ways is compatible with signaling, especially if you're not just signaling to the adversary, but also doing some secret diplomacy, okay? Also seeing ways in which covert action may be a way of relieving pressure, of stabilizing the world. This is a, an inverse, if you will, of the stability and stability paradox we all worried about in the Cold War, right? We said mutually assured destruction is creating peripheral con conflicts all over the place. Maybe it's the case that cyber conflict is a way of actually helping to create uh, some stability in other places. That's, I think, um, some of the very counterintuitive and, and paradoxical things that are coming out of this new body of scholarship. So, so you know, the book I'm writing is, is called Age of Deception, and this is really the argument. The information age is the age of deception. It takes what we are learning about intelligence and secrecy in IR and supersizes it, okay? So this is familiar stuff, goes back thousands of years to Sunza, right? But it is supersized, it is digitized, it is civilianized, right? So this is intelligence contest happening at an entire new scale. Okay, and I am gonna end here with uh, an appropriately ambiguous conclusion, right? And I wanna suggest that uh, Stuxnet itself really highlights this general feature of cyber conflict, which is that it is incredibly liminal. It falls between most of the traditional distinctions that we make in IR scholarship and in policy between war and peace, between state and society, between the international and the domestic level, between anarchy and institutions, on and on and on. This is a set of practices that happen in the spaces in between. So in many ways, the ambiguities and the uncertainties that are associated with Stuxnet, I think, reflect this broader liminal nature of cybersecurity in general. So this is rich, rich future terrain to try and unpack this. Um, I know we went through a tremendous amount of information there. I'm going to stop talking, and I really look forward to all of your questions. Thanks a ton. Thank you, John. This was, wow, mind-blowing, and I'm still collecting my thoughts. Let me ask you the first one. Actually, I have so many. So I will start with a kind of fairly simple and uh, practical question. So is Stuxnet, as you kind of depicted it, is this redeployable in the sense of once you have figured out how this works, can you then apply it you know, in different settings, or basically, if you intend as a government to launch such an initiative, do you always start basically from scratch? Or is there, you know, I mean, I'm sure you, is this a kind of a weapon that you then can keep? Is the code replicable? Or basically, you always go back to zero? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you, it's a fantastic question. I think it's a really essential question. And you won't be surprised from my presentation. I'll say it's also a complicated question and an ambiguous question, right? Because the answer is kind of both on both sides. You know, um, cyber weapons are different than bombs that, you know, you leave the plans back in the lab, you mass produce it, you drop it, and then it destroys all the evidence in the process. You know, cyber weapon, to a certain extent, you send the blueprints along with the weapon. And if it's recovered, like the blueprints are still there. And this is something that people really, really worried about um, with Stuxnet. A better example in Stuxnet is actually this vulnerability called um, um, uh, Eternal Blue that was in the Seattle Brokers release that did get repurposed by the North Koreans for WannaCry and for the Russians with the NotPetya attacks. So, so yes, this is a real concern, but it also turns out that you have to have the kind of complementary institutions to, to put a lot of this together. 
Um, so, you know, there's kind of a range of vulnerabilities. I, you know, in some of my writing, I think I've been too categorical in saying cyber depends on secrecy. If you discover the tool, uh, it goes away. That is absolutely true of some vulnerabilities and absolutely not true of others. So we've kind of got this range of things that, you know, hey, this has been patched by Microsoft. You can't use that anymore. But maybe there's some general tradecraft and approaches that you do learn um, in, in the process, right? And so, so you know, we, we, we know that the Obama administration was concerned about this proliferation risk. And I think to a certain sense, it has been materialized. So, so it's complicated. There is a proliferation risk that are inherent in using these things, but because the complementary contribution of organizational planning institutions is so important. In some sense, like you, you're seeing how difficult it is to, to act on this, this blueprint that you've been developed, that you've been delivered. I will use the power of the chair to ask the last one. You know, Stuxnet is, and um, I fully understand that you call this the first, or you used to call it the first uh, cyber war attack. But ever since we have seen these other types of attacks, right? So US elections, and I know you've been working on this, but then more recently as well, like this kind of cooperation, if you want, even if it's just a latent between criminal gangs and maybe some kind of government support. And this, of course, this is a colonial pipeline. This is on hospital systems and so forth. So first, would you categorize all of this as cyber warfare, or do you make very clear distinctions and say it has to be state-to-state -state interactions and has to be really at this kind of like war-type level, for example, here to stop proliferation or like as a substitute to a missile strike? And then just to understand as well a little bit, is a hack on the election system as complicated to organize and, you know, like the entire apparatus that you were describing here in such great detail, is it, was the, the cozy bear uh, and, you know, like all these different operatives, uh, was this as much an operation as, as the Stuxnet? And, you know, like the colonial pipeline, these gangs, maybe you can say it just like a couple of words as well. Like, is, what's the depth of these operations actually? Okay, great. Um, well, in, in two minutes, let me see what I can do. Um, first off, um, I don't think I would call any of this uh, cyber warfare. I think that's a very, very small category. I would say this is all intelligence practice, which is fundamentally liminal and kind of in highlighting the criminal stuff, you know, you're highlighting some of that, that liminality. Uh, I think cyber warfare is a thing, but I think it is reflective of the growing dependence of military operations of all kinds on intelligence. And so um, uh, more intelligence all over the place means more intelligence in war. Uh, the cyber warfare part of that makes a lot of sense institutionally, but um, conceptually, right, I prefer the intelligence contest framing. I think it gives us more traction and points us in, in more useful, logical and, and, and investigative directions. That's, that's the first one. Second one was the supporting infrastructure. You're absolutely right. Like, the, the the supporting infrastructure here is, as far as we know, kind of unparalleled, right? I mean, um, you know, Juan Andres Guerrero Assad calls these a supra threat actor, right? Platforms that manage multiple agencies, multiple international coalitions, okay? Like that's the high end of the high end of, you know, espionage and covert action. Um, you see less in other places. I think there's actually, and then talk about this, but I think there's a systematic relationship between how much turbulence there is in your environment and how much infrastructure you need to build in unilaterally, 
Okay. And there's so much uncertainty and sensitivity. In the Stuxnet case, you needed a tremendous amount of scaffolding to, to support that. And the election side or any kind of disinformation side, you can outsource a ton of stuff because you are really relying on um, you are relying on uh, the existing kind of information systems and kind of networks of political communication uh, to do a lot of the work. Uh, for you. But ironically, right, you are so beholden in to the cooperation of the target that it almost makes disinformation operations like weirdly superfluous. Like, my, my, this is a whole nother talk, right? But I mean, I think Russian intervention in the US is, is far more symptomatic of things going on than it was actually effective, right? So like, it's this interesting stain that becomes possible, like a stain on a slide in a sense, not a stain morally, but you, know, you could argue that too, um, that shows kind of the, the, the potential and the kind of homegrown nature of a lot of kind of disinformation currents in the United States um, that make a fertile area for the, the Russians, but it's so fertile that, you know, in a sense, they're kind of drowned out by, by the noise. So I think there's high, high, huge variation in, in the requirements and the kinds of activity that you're seeing. But I want to kind of make this meta point that it's the very preciousness of Stuxnet that highlights the incredible importance of political and socio-technical context in general. So that's, I think, what we should take away. Okay. Well, John, thank you so much. This was one of the best talks on uh, cybersecurity I've ever heard. So thank you um, for joining us. And um, I hope our audience enjoyed it as much as I did. That concludes the session. Thanks for coming. I hope you uh, will join us next time on our next episode of the speaker series. And this will focus on uh, nuclear deterrence with Julia McDonald from the University of Denver. Have a good night. And I hope I see you very soon. Be safe. Bye.